Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Russell Dyer is the VP and Chief Communications and Government Affairs Officer at Mondelez International. At Mondelez, Russ is responsible for overseeing all external and internal communications as well as government affairs for Mondelez International, a Fortune 150 and the global leader in snacking. Russ joined Mondelez in 2015 as Vice President of Global Communications. Prior to joining Mondelez, Russ spent two years at Kraft, and before that, Russ was agency side with a six and a half year stint at Weber Shanwick. Really enjoyed this conversation with Russ. He got into Oreo's real-time content engine, the importance of inventing your own ESG best practices, as well as why it's critical for young professionals to have a hunger for networking. Please enjoy this conversation between Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer and Chief Communications and Government Affairs Officer at Mondelez, Russ Dyer. Hello and welcome back. This is Paul Dyer from Lippy Taylor. I'm joined today by Russ Dyer, who is not related, at least um, for as many generations as we can count backwards. Uh, Russ is, however, the Vice President and Chief of Communications and Government Affairs at Mondelez International. Russ, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Paul. Have you done the work on Ancestry.com to know that that statement's true? or You know what? I should have before I made that statement. It was more of an assumption. Um, because I've done some on my side and I don't recall a Russ popping up. So I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe we are more closely connected than I thought. Um, so Russ, I thought we would start our conversation today with, um, something that was in the news from Oreo very recently. Um, there was a supposed Oreo mayonnaise, uh, mashup product that came out and was, you know, it became viral, a viral hit for a minute and maybe was, was debunked. Is this thing happening or not? Oreo. So Oreo was the first brand I worked on when I was on the agency side. And when Oreo speaks, people listen. And the amount of things that come the brand's way inbound every day around the world is, is pretty amazing. And uh, we have a global newsroom team meeting every week where we look at all the brand activity, all of the corporate activity. And it's hard to get through the Oreo update with a straight face and our North American leads. You know, one day they're putting cookies in a bunker uh, for doomsday. Another day they're um, looking at mashups with other categories. It's, and that's, you know, that's their brand equity playfulness. So it's, uh, it's so much fun working with and for an icon like that. I mean, I, I can only imagine, and you know, these these um, these stunts or activations, you know, whatever sort of phrase you, you may want to use, all speak to you know the overarching concept of what we like to refer to as earned creative, right? Um, ideas that are inherently worth talking about. So you may have obviously Oreo has this brand equity, but that was hard earned, right? It didn't just it didn't just naturally come in a in the wrapper with the cookie. Um, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the role of earned creative and sort of building that equity um, using earned creative um, for a brand like Oreo or others. Yeah, I think brand relevance is obviously different brand to brand. And I think inherent in Oreo's 
IMC work and global IMC work since the early days has been speed and playfulness. And that doesn't mean you always get it right, but when you are in tune with the conversation of the day, and this goes back, you know, even before the, the Oreo daily twist, the sort of iconic hundredth birth, birthday campaign, um, you know, when you, when you really dial into the conversation of the day in a brand authentic way, the opportunities for that type of earned creative are, are endless. I mean, it's within every news cycle, there are opportunities for content, opportunities for engagement. And Oreo has built such an amazing body of work around that relationship with, with its consumers, with media, um, that the, the effects can really be compounding. And it's, it's fun to watch. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm often global now and in headquarters and the brand team in the US and, and other brand teams around the world, the creativity just never ceases to amaze me. And that's the right agency partners, that's the right ways of working, but it's also just brands like Oreo that consumers truly love. So you mentioned your role, you know, in, as part of the global team and you know, obviously working across many regions, many brands, um, et cetera. Um, the idea of um, purpose in general um, has obviously become very important in the industry, but also um, publicly very important to Mondelez as a company in recent years. So I'm curious, um, you know, so many disparate brands, um, so many different regions, how are you able to align on a unifying purpose and ensure that there's consistency, you know, throughout those different groups? So we, I guess for, you know, anyone listening who may not be familiar with the company in 2012, Kraft, which was a $50 billion company split in two and the North, North American grocery business kept the, the name Kraft given it was the brand and the categories in, in North America and Mondelez International was the international snacks business, very high growth, but very low margin business at the time. And like many in the industry, we went on a years long restructuring of our business to improve our profit margins. And those years of cost cutting and transformation were very difficult, um, but they were important years and they've really set the stage for the, the growth and the return of the consumer that we're enjoying now. In 2018, when Dirk Van De Put, our new CEO came in, that was one of his first asks to me and to our CMO which was to develop a clear and credible corporate purpose that could be an identity for the company that brings our brands together and is a, you know, a vision for the future and a, a unifying rallying cry. And the portfolio, the breadth of the portfolio, the geographic footprint, the languages, I mean, all of that adds complexity to carving out a story that is, is clear, is credible, is inclusive of, of all of the brands and the dimensions of our business and doing it for a new CEO, his first ask, um, you know, added, added to the complexity and, and made the stakes higher. But I'm, I'm really proud of what the organization and our, our teams around the world have done to, um, to develop what we call Snacking Made Right, our, our purpose platform. And from 2018, really until this year, it had been about articulating the story, defining our measures of success, you know, painting this picture for who the company wants to be. And now that the brand work is really taking hold, we're starting the second chapter of that journey where 
you tell the story of our purpose through the brand lens and through the brand equity, you know, for Cadbury through their generosity campaigns and their executions for Oreo, you know, playfulness, inclusion, these, these ideas that are, that are core, core to their brand equity and they're, and they're doing things in powerful ways, but they all do add up to this, you know, centralized vision of, of snacking made right. And it's, it's been an amazing journey. And I think we've found that um, we are, you know, we are more alike than we think we are, despite geographies, different consumer bases, different categories. Uh, and there was, after so many years of, of cost cutting and all of the things that can make it hard to believe in corporate purpose, there was a real pull from the organization for that vision and for the, you know, the programs and the platforms to make that real at a brand level. So it's exciting to see where we are just three years since turning the page. Indeed. And you, and you mentioned, uh, you know, articulating that story and you did literally articulate the story in your 2020 snacking made right report, which highlighted, um, sort of disclosed your, your approach to ESG and how it's driving progress against your 2025 goals. Um, so when you think about the, the report itself and being that transparent and publishing these goals and, um, you know, sort of amplifying it across channels and all of that, what does that indicate, I guess, about not just Mondelez and your CEO, but the broader state of the industry in terms of seeking accountability against ESG metrics and things like that? It's, you know, the rise of ESG, the fact that shareholders and all of these ratings and rankings and indices that we, we know so well, um, it, it's helped with one of the harder parts of our jobs as communicators, which is making it very tangible, making it very measurable. And whenever any communicator creates a campaign, creates a, you know, a purpose platform, drawing those measures for how you define success and how it contributes to the business and how it contributes to these social and environmental outcomes uh, is really important. And I, I think that's something that makes our jobs easier because it's, you know, the, there will always be criticisms of companies as to whether their words match their actions. You know, we work very hard on a disclosure to make it clear that we have long-term roadmaps, long-term investment strategies on these, these programs. And, you know, back to where we were talking on the, on the brand front, now the brands are taking on a lot of these actions and it's happening more and more at the consumer level, not just at this sort of higher corporate level. So that's really exciting because now when our management team is looking at the, the KPIs across the business, sustainable sourcing and women in leadership and these dimensions of our purpose are right there alongside revenue and profit and the financial measures. And I, I don't think that was happening at a lot of companies, you know, years past before this um, very important moment we've had in, in terms of purpose and ESG becoming very real and tangible in the business. It's interesting. I mean, it's bringing to mind, um, you know, years ago, I used to hear communications described as the conscience of the company, which, you know, felt a little punitive almost, right? Like we're there to be finger wagging or something. But now, obviously, you're saying the CEO is driving this vision and it sounds like the rest of leadership is aligned around it. So in that world, what is the role of communications within the within the executive suite? And, you know, in terms of um, continuing to drive these this this uh, prominence of ESG sustainability, et cetera. 
It's a, it's a great question. I think one really important part of our job is bringing the outside in. And I think particularly a company like ours who has gone through those years of cost cutting where you are only looking internally, it can be easy to miss the landscape and the important developments externally. And I think it's not just about benchmarking your peers, but it's about understanding your footprint as a company and the change you can affect. You know, the, the multi-stakeholder capitalism conversation has been well-documented for many years. I think public company CEOs understand that, you know, this is not the softer side of reputation. This is about growing your business and there is financial benefit to embracing corporate purpose, defining it in the right way and investing behind it. And that's what's exciting about ESG and the fact that as many of these conversations that we used to be having with media or NGOs, we're now having with shareholders and those that are assessing both the financial and non-financial measurements of the outcomes of our business. So that's all really an exciting place to be. So one, one last example of this, I'd just love to hear you opine on before we move on a little bit, but Triscuits, one of your brands recently signed on to what I think is a pilot. It might be more of a commitment than that, but around traceability. And you can now trace straight from the wheat field to the, the plant where the Triscuits are boxed and um, that that's you know, a big initiative or at least the potential for a future initiative um, around just overall supply chain transparency. And so I'm wondering, is that part of the ESG you know, goals you've set forth? Is it more of an innovation? Where, how are you thinking about that? It is. It's, it's definitely a, a pilot and a test and learn. It, it is a lift and shift from Europe and something that our Lou Biscuit brand did um, with tracing wheat. I mean, the story of Triscuit's supply chain is pretty amazing in the U.S. I mean, we work with a handful of, of family farms in, in Michigan where we source the wheat. It comes to Naperville, Illinois. Um, and I've, it's, you know, one of the few plants that I've actually visited to see the process and more and more consumers and stakeholders are interested in transparency and where your ingredients come from and, uh, what your manufacturing processes are. And this is an exciting technology that we are testing and learn. It's one brand, it's one category. It's easier to do with a brand like Triscuits that starts with three simple ingredients, but it's, it's exciting and, and, you know, inspiring for what can come of a more su transparent supply chain um, down the road. So excited to have this pilot launch, take those learnings from Europe and continue this, the important cross-functional partnership. Th you know, this is for, for those on the corporate communication side, it is interesting seeing the, the way the sausage is made, if you will, in terms of this being uh, a corporate affairs project that partners with marketing, that partners with supply chain, that partners with, um, uh, our friends in IT, and it takes all of those functions working together to bring these programs to life. Um, but there's something in it for everyone, you know, every one of the stakeholders of those functions. Well, I mean, it's a testament also to the, the organization and the collaboration that you must have with those departments, because when you think about a lot of the movement in the food and beverage space over the last 10 years or so was DTC startups, you know, that they were winning on these kinds of things, right? Because they could trace from the one farm <laughs> to the boxes they were put in. And it was much easier when a company of a hundred people. Right. Um, 
but of course, a lot of that changed in the last year and a half. We have a, a resurgence in nostalgia for brands that we've always loved and things like that. I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on the current state of sort of, uh, you know, uh, big packaged food versus startups and DTC and how you guys are, are, I guess, defending against that or maybe leading out now in this post-COVID world. Yeah, it's funny. The, the narrative of sort of big versus small, I really do think has, has shifted a lot. When I was leading corporate affairs at Kraft, you know, in, in the business, there would be discussions about these, you know, these ankle biter brands and, uh, you know, insurgent brands and this language that was very sort of us versus them. And I really don't see that anymore. I, I see partnerships and collaborations with big companies like ours, $27 billion global companies partnering with these small well-being startup brands who they have challenges and they want to learn and we're interested in forging those relationships to also learn from them on these interesting innovations and these you know crazy well-being categories that we could never pilot or go into on our own they just you know it wouldn't make sense for uh, a company in a footprint like ours but together we can we can learn and we've started some great ventures we have our, our Snack Futures Innovation Hub uh, is a great format, and they started a program called CoLab that is exactly this exchange with U.S.-based well-being brands, and it's, I think, a very different tone from where it was years ago, um, where one plus one can equal three, and they can learn from our capabilities and our experience and expertise as a global company. We can learn from them on ways of working and agility and consumer centrism. Um, so we're, we're doing a lot more in that space. Well, I'm not here to plug my book, Russ, but I did put collaborate as a strategy as one of the big, you know, ways of the future. So I'm sorry, I didn't cite you guys as an example. Now I'm realizing I should have, but you know, that's, I think that's great. The, you know, the collaborating and, and, you know, bringing together um, what everybody's best at. Um, it's interesting over the last uh, you know year and a half as not just we've seen so much change that was obviously pandemic induced, but also as the workforce was was forced to be primarily remote and virtual. A lot of what we've seen has been CEOs, presidents, business leaders uh, who suddenly were thrust into a world where they had to actually manage the business via internal communications in a way that they didn't you know previously have to. And I'm wondering if you and your role have felt a difference in the way they've engaged you and, and the way the prominence that they've put on the overall employee experience and internal communications. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the adage it's been way overused uh, the past 16 months of not letting a good crisis go to waste. I think as communicators, we feel that more intensely because never before and perhaps never again will as much focus from senior leadership be put on internal communications elements of public and government affairs and stakeholder engagement that were just absolutely critical to defend your freedom to operate during chaotic lockdowns particularly outside of the u.s early last year employee morale and engagement uh, you know, in 16 months, 17 months of remote working, and it'll continue in many markets, you know, that are further behind the U.S.'s and in, in the vaccine rollout. So we've we've spent a lot of time and attention because we're already in the throes of planning for 2022 to think about 
how we can continue to earn that interest from business leaders and that seat at the table for how much of a commercial and competitive advantage internal communications and engagement can be. Um, and a year like last year will expose when things are broken and you know where there's opportunities, but it can also teach you a lot about your organization and, and the culture you have. And uh, I think everyone in, in the organization, particularly a, a global organization like ours that you know can be can be siloed and matrixed as any 80,000 person company can be. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people feel like they learned a lot about the company, the people they work with, what's possible in terms of uh, in, engagement. And we just need to make sure that we don't go back to, you know, the old normal as opposed to the new normal. Mm-hmm. So we, we've touched on a, a number of different things that I think would be sort of classified as the, the trending best in class, you know, the earned creative, the moving fast on Oreo uh, purpose and ESG. So if we think about people listening right now, many of them, you know, um, aspiring leaders in communications and marketing roles, as they think about the mindsets that they should adopt or capabilities that they should try to uh, improve, you know, in the future, what what do you think are going to be the the things that are going to be important a couple of years down the road? Simplicity, I think especially for a company like ours, the, the volume of content, the proliferation of channels, the topics, the stakeholders, everything only grows in terms of the breadth of what we need to touch. And more and more, the sort of Apple store mentality of the clearer, the cleaner, the simpler, the more useful, um, you know, being skilled at simplifying messages and simplifying content is not the sexiest thing, but it is so impactful when you can do it right and do it well. Um, And so I think that's a capability we're all trying to get better at. And I think where there are agency partners, where there are tools, um, tech, things that help you simplify and streamline, I've got a lot of time for conversations uh, on that topic. There's probably a couple of tech vendors right now that are looking up your email address. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say, I mean, what I heard was essentially writing, but really good writing that gets to the core of, of a subject. Um, and obviously that is one of the classic skills of communications that even in a, a video conference world will always be important. There's also a debate that's been going on for many years now about analytics and being quote unquote data driven versus you know using insight, intuition, creative thinking. Um, so wh- where do you fall on this great uh, great debate of left and right brain? Um, probably in not so interesting a space, which is uh, you, you know you need a little bit of both. This is a debate we've had internally for many years. You know we have a, as I said a global newsroom that really focuses on our global storytelling and breaking down a lot of the silos that used to exist, um, you know, across the business, particularly on the internal side and some of our external channels. And you need the right data and you need to be able to pull it together in a less manual way to inform and improve the decisions you're making and the content you're creating and the audiences. But measurement can become a very expensive 
and very time consuming exercise, if not scoped appropriately. So I do think we've gotten discipline when we're assessing a campaign, when we're assessing a channel to say, what are the measures that we really care about that we're going to actually go do something about? Um, it is one of the more interesting places on you know the tech side where where things are advancing and you can have more data at at your fingertips more dashboards more useful presentations of the data in ways that um you know executives care about um but i i, I would never over index on the left brain or the right brain i think the art and science of what we do is what makes our jobs interesting because it you know it, it brings both sides to bear and if done right, you're using both sides of your brain every day. Yeah, I, I have to say that's what I've why I've always taken issue with the idea of being data driven. You know, like we're just riding in the back seat and data's got the steering wheel. It never seemed to quite quite work. Um, so our, our marketing teams have a lot of the same conversations too, which is interesting. You know, we've we've talked about uh, you know. In, in our marketing organization, they talk about empathy at scale as this idea that, yes, the personalization that platforms and data can provide to customize your message all around the world, but none of that matters if it's not a human message and culturally relevant. And uh, you have to have both. And the second one drives out the other from your, your marketing plans, you're in trouble. So let's um, riff off of personalization here and let's um, wrap our conversation with one personal uh, question. So for you, Russ, obviously you're, you're a young guy in a very big job. You're obviously smart, but I'm sure you also had people who helped along the way. And this is something that um, people are oftentimes asking about is, um, you know, what sort of mentor should I be seeking? Is it finding that one champion that takes me along with them or is it exposing myself to lots of senior people or like how do I how do I find that um, those people that are going to help me get to the next level and so I'm, I'm curious for you you know what what did it look like it's a great question I have had uh, some amazing bosses and mentors and leaders uh, that I've learned from and, and drafted off of um, I, you know, too many to start to name here because I'll, I'll leave one out. But I do think that is one of the beauties of our industry, particularly on the agency side, is you are exposed to a lot of different leadership styles at a very young age. And you can learn from a, a broad assortment of, of styles, of, of companies and, and ways of working. And I've always been very transparent in my my bias for agency experience for that reason. Um, you know, the odds of you ending up with, you know, a world-class boss leader manager manager in a, in a, a place where, um, you know, that's all you need for your professional growth. Those are, those are slim odds, but the more you can widen your base and, and learn from others, whether they're clients of yours, other agency leaders, et cetera, um, the, the better. So that's something that working at a global agency where I really got my start on the communication side, uh, I benefited a lot from. I also think a lot of the relationships that I have are the people who are just hungry for that connection. And it's not necessarily mentorship in 
you know, in the traditional sense, it's just connection. It's interesting conversations. It's casual coffees, you know, bouncing off the news of the day. And those people that are hungry for that build networks inside and outside of their organization that I think um, prove value down the road when you're growing and stretching with different assignments and different roles. Uh, and, you know, that's that's also part of what makes working at a global company like Mondelez so exciting because you can forge those relationships with colleagues who you've worked with on projects in India or the UK or Brazil or whatever it may be. Um, so I think a, a wide base of leader leaders, intellectual curiosity, but really being that squeaky wheel and, and going out and forging those relationships is really important. That's great advice and a great place to wrap up our conversation. So Russ, thank you very much for joining us and sharing all of your insights here today. I know that people are going to be really excited to hear these. Thanks for having me, Paul. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Russ Dyer. Number one, speed and playfulness are the name of the game. As a brand, Oreo has just about nixed the extensive content approval process in favor of quick brand responses in real time, which is what this digital age demands when it comes to brand relevance. Perhaps the most notable example of this was Oreo's Dunk in the Dark campaign, which has a place in the annals of marketing history to this day. The idea itself was extremely simple, but the fact that they were the first brand to respond during this moment in culture completely catapulted them to the top of the conversation, making this one piece of content a best practice for years to come. As such, Oreo has built a social media content engine based on quick responses and engaging with conversations of the day in real time and in ways that are authentic to the brand. Number two, ESG is an open playing field. Invent your own best practices. Mondelez launched the first of its kind traceability program with the Triscuit brand, whereby consumers were able to see the exact path to production the crackers take. This includes everything from where the ingredients are sourced from to the exact manufacturing process. As more and more consumers and stakeholders become interested in transparency, finding new ways of disclosing this kind of information is going to become more and more important. Rather than studying how other brands were handling this element of ESG, Mondelez decided to invent their own, and I'm sure other brands will begin to do similar traceability programs. ESG is still an evolving field, so rather than wait for a best practice to emulate, do what Mondelez did and create your own pilot programs and test and learns to chart the path forward yourself. Number three, the squeaky wheel gets the opportunities. Russ delivered a killer piece of career advice, which was to make sure you are consistently and constantly exposing yourself to new people, new knowledge, and new ways of thinking and learning. Throughout the course of a career in marketing, it's rare to have a manager who will give you the kind of mentorship and education that will really enable you to flourish towards executive leadership. These are the kind of things that you are going to have to find for yourself. Russ specified that it takes a hunger for new knowledge and relationships to move upward. So get out there, start taking people out for lunches, coffees, or just casual conversations, if only to expose yourself to new ways of thinking and working. It all pays off eventually. 
Anyway, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, check us out at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.